This is Inglorious Trexpert, Darren Docterman. And from me and everybody at the Trexperts, we wish you a lovely holiday season and hope that you have time to spend it with your friends and family and with our wonderful swag from our various websites and our sister podcasts, Inglorious Trexperts and 430 Movie. At the Inglorious Trexperts site, that's ingloriousTrexperts.com, you can find a whole bunch of swag with our Trexperts logos and famous uh, quotes from the show and T-shirts and sweatshirts and hoodies and spatulas. No, there's no spatulas. But uh, you can get tote bags and uh, coffee mugs, all that sort of swag that uh, you've come to uh, expect from a high-quality podcast. So take a look on ingloriousTrexperts.com and also look at 430movie.com. That's 430movie.com. Hello and welcome to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we talk about interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. Most of the time, the movies you're trying to make don't get made. Like, four of them may happen, one of them may happen, none of them may yeah. happen, and I'll be attached to three more things by end of summer. Turn the script into something resembling like Unforgiven with Conan. Yeah. Sadly, the rights expired and the whole thing just like went away Ow. overnight. New episodes will be available every other Monday. We won't see you at the movies. Best Movies Never Made, as featured in Entertainment Weekly, is available wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. If you think you felt a great disturbance in the force, you're not wrong. Ed Gross and me, Mark A. Altman, have a new oral history from St. Martin's Press. It's Secrets of the Force, the complete, uncensored, unauthorized oral history of the Star Wars saga. So wherever you buy books, audio and video, Pick it up today, and you can learn the secrets of the Force. And don't miss our oral history of Star Trek in stores now. And, of course, nobody does it better. The complete oral history of James Bond in digital, hardcover, paperback, and audio. That is all. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Docterman. And we are the Inglorious Trexperts. And this is the Inglorious Trexperts Holiday Special, part not one, not two, not three, four. Part four. And oh. uh, starting on the second half, there are four hosts. <laughs> They're all here. There are four hosts <laughs> returning, four returning to the podcast. As 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 much as he probably would like to not be here, it's uh, the writer and producer of um, such movies as Free Enterprise. He's the host of the Burnett Work on YouTube. You can check out his incisive and insightful commentaries on everything in pop culture. Mister Robert Meyer Burnett. I am privileged to be here with you fine fellows. And returning Trexpert, the writer of uh, and creator of. Um, Dota Dragon's Blood, currently airing on Netflix, as well as the shows as Black Sails, Thor, X-Men First Class. It's Ashley Edward Miller. Uh, I share uh, Rob Burnett's gratitude and uh, joy. Gratitude. 
and joy. And joy. From both of them. Peace and contentment <laughs> be with you. <laughs> oh, what a great character that Counselor Troy was, huh? Oh, yeah. I feel great joy and gratitude. Okay. Anyway, we're, we're, this is part four. We just finished part three with Denny Villeneuve's arrival. That's where we left off before the break. Now we're back for number 49. Back. And things are going to start to get very interesting. We're back so, from outer space. Without any further ado, number 49, it's here, and Darren's here to tell us about it. Number 49 comes from 1956, and it is, uh, it is sort of the, uh, the entry into uh, the paranoia of the Cold War uh, mm. in, uh, in another form, in Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Listen to me. Please listen. If you don't, if you won't, if you fail to understand, then the same incredible terror that's menacing me will strike at you! from another world, spawned in the light years of space, unleashed to take over the bodies and souls of the people of our planet, bringing a new dimension in terror to the giant super scope screen. Whatever intelligence or instinct it is that can govern the forming of human flesh and blood out of thin air is fantastically powerful, beyond any comprehension. A cursed, dreadful, malevolent thing was happening to those he loved. Isn't just an ordinary body, is it? I never saw one like it. It looks unused. The sensational star discovery of the view from Poppy's head. And now an undreamed of horror makes her life and love a vortex of fear. Jack! <laughs> Suddenly, while you're asleep, they'll absorb your minds, your memories. I don't want any part of it. You're forgetting something, Miles. What's that? You have no choice. From city to city, an incredible hysterical panic spreads. As the unimaginable becomes real, the impossible becomes true. Stop and listen! Stop and listen to me! Listen! Listen! Listen to me! What do you do when everyone you know seems just a little bit different and not exactly themselves? Is it you or is it them? And I'm not talking about the giant ants. I'm talking about pod people. They are uh, growing in, uh, in vast quantities. Vast. Um, it, uh, it stars uh, Kevin McCarthy. Dana Winter, Larry Gates. It was directed by Don Siegel, who later directed Dirty Harry in the early 70s. Um, it's, uh, it's pretty scary. I mean, the, the premise is, uh, is nightmarish, where people are being taken over by something we don't know, like these plant creatures who uh, basically uh, grow new uh, neighbors for you. Um, 
and uh, they have uh, a hidden agenda. We don't know what's going on. Uh, and uh, the main character doesn't know what's going on until it's almost too late. So um, it's, uh, it's black and white. So you may have to imagine colors like green, uh, but uh, it's, it's very exciting. It's, uh, it's pretty advanced for, its, uh, for the year 1956, actually. It's, it's, uh, it's a, a, a pretty high concept idea. Um, but it's a lot of fun and it's spooky and it's scary and uh, I highly recommend it. Yeah, as Darren alluded to, it's a, a metaphor for the Red Scare that had gripped America at the time. The fear of anyone ne- uh, who lived near you could be a communist, God forbid. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, Don Siegel was a, a, a more conservative director, but it's such a great movie. And it, you, you see this in a lot of the 50s movies where uh, it's really a metaphor for um, what's going on in the times. These movies were about something and uh, which, you know, they weren't just popcorn entertainment and uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers is one of the best of them. Really terrific movie. Kevin McCarthy's great. It's it's a fantastic movie. It's a real nail biter and, um, uh, you know, a great a, a great choice. And if you haven't seen it, you absolutely should seek it out. There's a what is it, Rob? Is it Arrow who did that great Blu-ray or who, I forget who put out the or indicator powerhouse well, of of the original? Yeah, the original. That was, that was one of the very first Criterion releases on. Laser yeah, but there, there's a more recent version of Invasion by Snatch of 56. Um and I forget who put it out, but it's it's a, it's a, it's a really good disc um, for those who want to seek it out on home video. Um, Find it. It's good. Indeed. Okay. Number 48. Rob likes to consume, as you can tell from the reservatory. <laughs> well, yeah, this is a, a film that did not get a lot of love when it first came out. It was one of three films that John Carpenter was going to make for Alive films. He only ended up making two of them. This was his follow-up to Prince of Darkness. And believe it or not, it cost just a little bit more than $3 million, which is pretty extraordinary considering what they got for that money. This is, of course, They Live. What do these things want, and why are they here? You still don't get it, do you, boy? They have recruited the rich and the powerful. They're running the whole show. Wake up! They're all about you, all around you. Blinded us to the truth! Take a look. They are safe as long as they are not discovered. I don't know what they are or where they came from, but we gotta stop them. Stay away from me. Put these on. They have us. Look at them. They're everywhere. They're our owners. We have no other choice. I don't like this one bit. Leave it alone, man. It ain't none of my business. Ain't none of yours. We have been lulled into a trance. Listen to what I'm saying to you. We're in trouble. The whole world's in trouble. Control! You're sending some kind of signals on TV sets. I've got one that can see. Mama don't like tattletale. Now we start spilling some blood. Let's go! Push I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick And I'm all out of bubblegum. And uh, it stars... Rowdy Roddy Piper as Nada, a a drifter, a homeless man who finds his way into uh, an encampment of of homeless people that also houses a group of revolutionaries that have realized that in the midst of all the Los Angelinos, 
uh, aliens have basically taken over the world as we know it, but we just don't know it. <laughs> and with the help of magical sunglasses, Nada is able to see that everything that surrounds us, our broadcast channels, the billboards, the buildings, everything is actually designed to brainwash us by by <laughs> these aliens that are relatively goofy, but but it, it, it fit right in. And, and we'd already been, we've already been taken over and we just don't know. We're all sheeple. And um, uh, Carpenter had said that this movie, it's actually based on a short story called eight o'clock in the morning uh, from 1963. And, but he found this story and he, he wanted to do something about Reaganomics and the economic policies of, of Ronald Reagan. And that the Reagan revolution was actually run not by Republicans, but by aliens um, and it is, it is, it, it, again, it's, it's a B movie. It was shot mostly on location in and around downtown Los Angeles. And it touches on, um, the failed economic policies that we're still, we're still seeing today. Every time I go to downtown LA, even now, you cannot help but think that they live has actually happened. I look for those sunglasses. I'm like, I wish I could see what was really going on. Well, it's very much the in the pop culture zeitgeist. People, I mean, almost talk about this movie more now than they did when it was released. Yes. And of course, it um, uh, it has some of John Carpenter's frequent collaborators, such as actor uh, George Buckflower. And uh, it has Keith David, who appeared. He was Childs in Carpenter's The Thing back in 82. And he's greatness. And yes, and he plays Frank Arbitage. And a lot of people remember... There's a six minute fight scene in an alleyway it's, between Rowdy Roddy Piper and uh, it's Keith longer David. than six minutes. <laughs> it's it's a long, long fight. scene. It's like a 20 minute fight. They just <laughs> punch each other in an alleyway. People forget that John Carpenter inexplicably was was into wrestling. And there was a time in the mid 80s where Fangoria magazine was suddenly covering professional wrestling, which was sort of odd. But they put that in there. And uh, it's this movie is a lot of fun. Meg Foster, who played Evil Lynn in Masters of the Universe with her strange eyes. She's in the film. And um, basically they they go and they become revolutionaries to fight against this new alien world order that's imposed upon us. And it's really got some striking visuals. And even though it was done for a very low budget, this movie is monumentally entertaining. And I think that when, when he finally puts the glasses on and sees the world as it really is, uh, it's very effective. Even though done on the, done on the cheap, it works very well. Yeah, absolutely. And this was the the era of uh, the 80s where uh, alien invasions coming to us in the guise of, uh, uh, you know, was very much in vogue because you had V, which was a huge phenomenon on television, where it was also seemingly ordinary humans had infiltrated uh, humanity and they were actually evil lizard people. Um, so, uh, but a, a great movie. And I think, Ashley, you might have said yesterday, imagine how great this movie would have been had Kurt Russell started instead of Roddy Piper. Oh yeah. 100%. I think it would have completely, I mean, look, I really, I really, really dig they live, but I think that Kurt Russell would have, would have elevated it. Roddy, Roddy Piper was, he was fine. Um, but I think you need the gonzo, um, very real charisma of a Kurt Russell to center, uh, a movie like this. And doesn't it have one of the great quotes of any sci-fi movie in the eighties? I am here to kick ass and to chew bubble gum, and I am all out of bubble gum. There you go. There you go. Although he wasn't presented in the form of a question. 
<laughs> you lose. <laughs> you don't get the money. Am I here to kick ass and chew bubblegum? Am I all out of bubblegum? Tune in and see. But you know what's okay. really cool about this film is that Everything. it's it's well yeah, but it's low budget nature. It's still a theatrically released film. Yep. And it has that widescreen sheen that Carpenter brought to all of his movies, beginning with Assault on Precinct 13. It's 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 a widescreen movie that was made for three million bucks. Yep. And it I miss the days where low budget horror and sci-fi like New Lines the Hidden, which I believe is on this list. And uh I miss those days when you could go to a movie theater and Carpenter was a master of this. I mean, yeah. Prince of Darkness before this was great. Of course, we talked about Escape from New York already. The Fog. He really knew how to stretch his dollars and make films that were visually striking on a very low budget. And well, uh, it's an art form we don't have anymore. I remember, you know, I'd never seen Prince of Darkness. And Rob, you were the one who convinced me to watch it. But so many people had dismissed it. And you said, no, it's freaking awesome, Prince of Darkness. And... Um, you know, and I, I love that movie. So it's like you, you can't dismiss, uh, you know, sometimes the conventional wisdom is 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 wrong. And, and also people just disregard these low budget movies as though they have no value. But, you know, as we said yesterday on the last broadcast, often they're, they're a lot more interesting. And speaking of interesting, uh, a sci fi legend is about to make their debut on the countdown. Darren, tell us about number 47. Number 47 uh, tells you that uh, for your convenience, consumption has been standardized. Uh, <laughs> it is, of course, 1971's THX 1138. All Earth Council, in its infinite wisdom, has decided these two numbers are to be disposed of. The Biochemical Forum has demands to make on their parts, however, before they are eliminated. That's the kind of efficiency that makes you proud to live in this era. happy and effective. Consultation with leading experts in the field makes it perfectly clear, perfectly clear, that we are all now programmed for perfect happiness, perfect happiness, perfect happiness, perfect happiness. occasional technical or electronic errors in programming and or surveillance which produce perverse exceptions. I'm going to have a child. First they start skipping prescribed drug dosages, then they begin touching, then indulging in various sexual acts and the ultimate perversion, love. For such extreme psychobiological misfunction, only isolation will do. Despite rumors to the contrary, it should be made perfectly clear, perfectly clear, perfectly clear. There have been no, repeat, no unprogrammed departures, no pursuits. The shell people will attack any persons venturing beyond prescribed areas. 
the directorial debut of George Lucas, who you might have heard of. Uh, he did a few films after that. Um, but uh, this was part of that, uh, uh, of that uh, low budget uh, starting out filmmakers uh, project. Uh, and it was, uh, this was released through Warner Brothers. Um, and it was, um, it was a bit of a, a problem for American Zoetrope. This was part of the deal that Warner Brothers made with American Zoetrope, Francis Coppola's company, to produce several uh, relatively low budget films. And this uh, was the first of that deal. And, and the last. <laughs> and well, I, if you'll let me finish, please, sir. <laughs> um, Don't wait for the translation. They made the film. They screened it for the executives. The executives were appalled and had no idea what the movie was. And they canceled the deal right there and then. And Coppola had to fork over uh, uh, several hundred thousand dollars um, and uh, give up the deal. Uh, but uh, so it, it wasn't a very auspicious start for Mr. Lucas. Um, I can only imagine the hell he went through to uh, try and uh, uh, resolve himself and uh, move on to uh, American Graffiti after this. But uh, the, uh, the movie is amazing, however. And uh, I can only imagine what the uh, Suits and Warner Brothers thought because I don't think they got it at all. What's great about this movie is uh, Walter Murch, the co-writer and uh, editor of the uh, movie, um, basically says that this is a movie from another culture that was made in that other culture. And we don't understand it. And I, I, find that, I find that fascinating because on one hand, it's a, it's a very dismal look at the, the future, the 25th century, they say. And uh, uh, humanity has basically been uh, transformed into uh, living consumers and uh, living workers. It's uh, much more dark than Metropolis uh, postulated. It's... Uh, it's much more dismal because at least in Metropolis, uh, the workers had a purpose. Uh, there is no purpose for anybody in THX 1138. They just live to consume and buy these little, uh, these little cuboid uh, uh, things and then throw them out. It is um, really uh, a glum look at a possible future. However, there's another section of this movie that, that is interwoven with that, that is incredibly funny. And the humor is very dry, and, but it is hilarious if you look at it from a certain point of view. From a certain from point, a certain of, point view. of view. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, uh, the police in this society are robots. They have silver faces and they're dressed like uh, motorcycle cops in all black leather. And they're frightening but they're idiots. They, they wander around uh, uh, talking to uh, the, uh, uh, the people that are around and they have very mellifluous voices. They sing, how are you today? Please stand over here. It's, it's, very, it's very disturbing, but they're also not very bright. And uh, you can see that sometimes they go, uh, they go haywire uh, there's one scene where one of the cops is just walking into a wall repeatedly. Um, 
And uh, as it happens, our main character, Fix, THX1138 is his designation, but uh, they call him Fix. And uh, he builds these robots for a living uh, for his for his cuboid every week. Um, and uh, he has a very dangerous job. He has to handle uh, very uh, highly radioactive uh, uh, items uh, in a clean room with uh, Waldo arms. And it's very dangerous. There's a near accident where uh, they try to take over his brain with a, a brain scan. And uh, it, it's just, it's just a, a strange sort of existence for Thex. And it's almost an Adam and Eve story where his roommate, La, uh, 3417, uh, which is interesting, the names of these characters, La, Love, and Thex, Sex, um, they are symbolic. And it's basically uh, Adam and Eve where she changes his medication and he starts to awaken from his, uh, from his daylight slumber. And it is uh, really amazing how, as he comes to realize what's going on, he becomes more and more upset and more and more um, uh, driven to uh, rebel against everything that's going on. And so it's a, it's a, it's a uh, escape story, basically, how uh, THX uh, escapes from this world and, uh, and literally comes out into the sunlight. It's, extremely well done. I think it's actually, um, if it's not Lucas's best film, it's the one that he understands the most. And uh, you can get that when you listen to his commentary, he and uh, Walter Murch talking about it. It's really good. And you can tell that he loves this film. Yeah, it's not a particularly accessible film, but it's a really well-crafted film. Uh, Robert Duvall is fantastic yeah. as uh, the titular character. And um, you know, it has if you a whole think stereo system named after it. Yeah, if you think you, <laughs> <laughs> if you, you think you understand uh, Lucas as a filmmaker, you really owe it to yourself. The, these are the small experimental movies he threatened to make <laughs> and he's still his threatened. whole career. <laughs> um, and uh, but it's it's a terrific film. I was lucky enough to see him speak at a revival screening in Telluride, uh, where Elvis Mitchell interviewed him, and uh, you can just sense the passion he has for this movie. He was going to do a sequel, more THX 1138, but uh, it didn't go. <laughs> <laughs> well, they say there's no sanctuary, Jim, but there is straight out of hell. I've seen it. Number 46, Darren's back with another I, classic. I'm, I'm back. And it's, uh, it's fascinating because in 1976, uh, the 23rd century was a perfect world of total pleasure. There was uh, just one catch, Darren. <laughs> just one. Oh, yeah. You, you want to do this? <laughs> <laughs> There's just one catch. You have to die at 30. What? Die? I mean, no one, would go for that. no one would go for that. Um, well, they would if, uh, if they were told a fable and they believed it, that there was a way to renew and uh, get put into a baby body again after the fiery ritual of carousel where uh, the, uh, the newly minted 30-year-olds go in a, uh, a spinning disc and wear uh, horrific uh, 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 hockey masks of death as they uh, I rise. I want to see that movie, Hockey Masks of Death. 
That sounds really cool. I think that was uh, Halloween three. In a, in a beautiful spiral dance and explode. Yes, Ashley, you had something. I, I was going to say, uh, just sounds like prom. That's all. <laughs> Rob, well, you're a bit of a connoisseur of this movie. Well, I, I have to say that, you know, in my life, you know, I was nine when um, this movie came out. And it was the first movie I had seen the, the trailers for it because I'd already been a Star Trek fan and a Twilight Zone fan. And I'd seen so many movies, be science fiction films or whatever on television. This was the first big budget science fiction movie I remember seeing in a theater. Yeah, I had seen things like, I don't know, The Land That Time Forgot, but nothing like this. I mean, this was a big MGM production. It was a prestige project. It was actually, it's a literary based science fiction movie. It's based on William F. Nolan and George Clayton Johnson's novel. And in the novel, people uh, die at 21. Right. Um, but they had, they, you know, they made, they, they had to age it up. And I remember just, I sat in a the theater and I know the opening scene is a very unconvincing model shots, but I was entranced by this film Yeah. Uh, in a way. A year later, Star Wars certainly changed my life, but I'd never seen a vision of the screen, a, a vision of science fiction brought or dystopian civilizations. I'd never seen anything like this before. Yeah. And you know there's was, no such thing as a dystopian civilization where Jenny Gutter runs around in that outfit. It's true. <laughs> I mean, I guess it wasn't dystopian. In the dome, it wasn't dystopian. It was, it was very topian. <laughs> it but very it was, topian. yeah. It, and, and that was another thing. I mean, as a nine year old, the sexuality in this film was very overt. Um, the Ready love shop is definitely Robert there. put himself on the circuit after that. Oh man. <laughs> and, and it was, it was a, I mean, even Goldsmith score is one of my favorites of his. Uh, he combined electronic sounds with this beautiful symfo symphonic score. And it just had some very heady concepts that blew my nine year old mind. Yeah. And of course I ran right out and got the books and, um, Realized uh, that the movie had nothing to do with them. Yeah, the, the movie was very different, but it, it was it was definitely a very important movie in my life. And it's something we've you know, we as as friends and fans, we used to give each other Logan's run movie posters when people would turn 30. Just imagine a world where you will hold your entire future in the palm of your hand when a tiny glowing crystal will guide you through an existence in which each day is more wonderful than the last where it will be possible for you to obtain the fulfillment of every fantasy, the satisfaction of every vanity, the absolute attainment of every wish. Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer presents the Saul David production of Logan's Run, a fantastic journey through a world beyond imagination. Welcome to the 23rd century. The perfect world of total pleasure. Imagine a world in which you need never be alone. You touch a switch, turn a dial, and the perfect lover steps into your arms. Every pleasure is yours to experience. Runner! There's just one catch. When the tiny crystal in the palm of your hand flashes its final message, your time is up. Michael York is Logan. Run, Logan. Policeman in a perfect world. No! Trained to track down runners. Run, Logan. Until he is forced to run himself. Run, He's a runner. Logan! I'm your friend, I understand. We all go crazy once in a while. But she's a runner. 
and it's over. Overwhelming, am I not? <laughs> Box, an incredible being, more than human, more than machine, diabolical guardian of the gateway to freedom, or Logan and the woman who loves him. like that before. That must be the look of... of being old. MGM takes you into a new age of adventure in the first motion picture of the 23rd century. Logan's Run. It begins where imagination ends. And did it make you hungry for plankton, sea greens, and protein from the sea? Uh, absolutely. You it's know? funny. Um, Jessica is basically the first Tinder date. Uh, because uh, <laughs> she, she, puts herself, she puts herself on the circuit. Then she shows up and she says, oh, well, I don't really want to go on a date, actually. <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, I'll just, uh, I'm going to go. I don't really like this. So that's, uh, you know. The actual uh, well, because he was a sandman. She didn't want to have anything to do with the sandman. Uh, I think she did. <laughs> I don't know. I Everyone don't know. loves the sandman. It also had the best guns, the best mm-hmm. uh, uh, weapons that Not the sandman had. The prop, man. Yeah, yeah, well, we had the same problem on Free Enterprise. <laughs> yeah, we did. Rafer Weigel almost caught on fire from a malfunctioning <laughs> gun. <laughs> but but uh, it, it's sure fun, and it's sure um, it's it's sort of the last gasp of old Hollywood doing science fiction. Yes. MGM. Yeah. More stars than there are in heaven. You know, and they, they, it was in a way, it's not that different than like the Black Hole or Tron, where you have a studio like that trying to do something like hip and cool and groundbreaking. And it's hey, not really hey, fellow young people. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, you know, like you said, it hit us at just the right age, you know, with its, you know, and it's such a great premise. It's very much a 70s premise. Don't trust anybody over 21. In this case, it's it's 30. It also feels strangely like it's from not when it was made. It feels like it might have been made in the 50s. Yeah, exactly. Instead, of, it, it feels like it was a period piece along with Forbidden Planet in the late 50s, even though it's not. Well, because look at the director, Michael Anderson. Yeah. You know, and, and you, you know, it's funny because like you, I read the books after I saw the movie because I was really into the movie. And how do you experience it in the pre-home video era? You know, you, you read the book. And it wasn't a novelization. It was the actual book. And the yeah. book's so much better than the movie. And it's so different. And then, of course, the year, a year later, uh, because the movie, the popularity of the film, William F. Nolan wrote the first of two sequel novels. You know, right. Logan's, Logan's World. World. And let's not forget the CBS TV series with Gregory Harrison and Heather Menzies let's and Donald Moffat from and The Donald Thing as, as Rem, as the, Rem. The, the friendly android. That's the Potomac two-step, Logan. <laughs> okay number 45 ashley proves to us beyond a shadow of a doubt all you need is kill uh it's true um number 45 uh is a great movie with a terrible title uh yeah. 2014's edge of tomorrow what i am about to tell you sounds crazy but you have to listen to me 
very lives depend on it. This is not the end. You see, this isn't the first time. Now, we've had this conversation. What day is it? Judgment Day. You just came in with the fresh recruits. This is not the end. The invasion will fail, along with every soldier you are sending. We lose this is not everything. The end. Come find me when you wake up. Happened to you, happened to me. You hijacked their power. I need your help. With what exactly? Winning the war. We can do this. Just come here every day and I'll train you. This is not no matter what I do, this is as far as you go. Why does it matter what happens to me? I'm not a soldier. Of course you're not. You're a weapon. It's one of those titles that tells you absolutely nothing about the film, except that it might be an adaptation of a shitty CBS Canadian co-production nighttime soap opera. Yeah. Um, but it's not. It's actually a super cool uh, sci-fi war movie directed by Doug Lyman, who brought us Swingers and Go and cool stuff like and, and The Born Identity. Um, starring Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt. They're aliens, they're time travel, there's like shit blowing up. It is awesome, saddled with that title. It is, this title is so awful yeah. that it, it came to be known and in some way retitled um, by the, uh, basically by the, the, by the, the slogan graphics the on poster. the poster. Yeah, yeah, which are live die repeat evidently there's a sequel in the works called live die repeat and repeat which just goes to show you that at least like somebody in marketing somewhere learned their lesson um but the the premise even though it's a little bit heady uh is is in many ways it's 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 kind of dirt simple there's a, a soldier played by tom cruise um there he's caught in a war uh fighting back an alien invasion they seem to be completely unstoppable he gets exposed to the blood of one of the aliens and he learns why the aliens seem to be like just absolutely relentless um, and invincible. And it's because when they lose, uh, they get sent back in time to refight the battle. But because he is exposed to the alien blood, he develops that ability. He discovers that there's another soldier played by Emily Blunt, who is similarly exposed, who teaches him how to fight, teaches him how to use the ability 
Um, and it's just, it's incredibly cool. It is, it's one of those movies that, and, and, I, and I love movies like this. Two of my favorite kinds of movies are A, movies that I walk into them and I had no idea what the hell they were gonna be. Uh, and I walk out like just having loved it and feeling like, wow, I just, I discovered that movie um, and it's great. My other favorite kind of movie are, are movies like this, where you just don't appreciate it at the time for just how smart and how cool it is because there's so much gack kind of surrounding it. Like the, the, um, the, the rap on the movie ahead of time was how like it was gonna disappoint at the box office, the development process, all of these things. Even though, look, every movie, almost every movie has like has a difficult birthing process, um, but it was, you know, the, the closer on this movie was Christopher McQuarrie uh, you know, who you might know from the usual suspects, you know, the Mission Impossible movies, like, and, and whatever you think of the Mission Impossible movies, like, certainly, like, you can't fault them uh, for the for the quality of their action. And the fact that Tom Cruise happens to, uh, to like, obviously, like, uh, Christian McQuarrie is writing quite a bit. Um, so, I mean, I personally can't recommend this movie highly enough. Um, it is absolutely positively worth your valuable time. Um, it is one of my favorite Tom Cruise movies. Uh, and Emily Blunt is, even though she is caked in dirt and blood <laughs> and camouflage, she is luminous. I, I have to say that, too, this, this movie to me is one of the great failures of studio marketing. Yes. Um, first of all, the original, this is based on a Japanese manga called All You Need Is Kill, which, which is, is also one of a terrible title. No, no, no. All yes, You Need Is Kill is a title no one would have ever forgot. It would have been talked about. It would have been puzzled over. And I actually have the Japanese uh, release of this. And it's called All You Need Is Kill in Japan. But the idea they were going to call this movie Edge of Tomorrow, this film is a gamer movie. It might be yeah. the greatest. It's not about a video game per se, but the idea of how you learn and play a video game is what's really the undercurrent of this movie. And they never figured that out. They should have been tapping into the 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 video game player, the world of of we're all be, we've all become gamers to a certain extent. They never figured that out. That well, him, is, Tom Cruise, having to learn each each level. It's so <laughs> high concept. It's it's uh, uh, Groundhog Day meets War of the Worlds. It's the 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 core interesting thing about this movie is easy to promote, and I think they just didn't watch the movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know who came up with the, the title Edge of Tomorrow, but uh... but but damn them, sir. You know, one of my my friends who was uh, who was my executive on X-Men First Class and then got out of the executive game, which is too bad because he was a great one, um, once said to me, a great movie should never be a surprise. Yeah. Uh, and and it's and this just happens to be one of them. Yeah, it's such a great film. It really is. And uh, Tom Cruise is great and it's, it's brilliantly directed, which brings us to number 44. And if you ever doubted that Nick Meyer was a great director, well, he'll tell you he is. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, this, this film uh, really marks his emergence as a, a writer, director extraordinaire. And it's funny because, um, you know, he had he'd been nominated for an Oscar for his adaptation of um, Seven Percent Solution, uh, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, this is his directorial debut, and it's a really brilliant take on the time machine. 
And it postulates that H.G. Wells, played by Malcolm McDowell, in a rare role playing a likable, nice hero character, uh, actually invented the time machine and that the time machine novel was sort of a Romana cleft. And uh, one of his uh, his good friends, played by the always enjoyable David Warner, turns out to be Jack the Ripper <laughs> and uses the time machine to escape into the then contemporary 1979 uh, and H.G. Wells follows him where he falls in love with Mary Steenburgen, uh, as they did in real life. And it is a terrific thriller. Uh, it's well directed by Nick Meyer. It's even better uh, uh, in terms of uh, the, the writing. Um, you, if you're a Star Trek four fan, you're going to find a lot of gags that Nick recycled from time wasn't after that, time. Wasn't that a scene from time after time? And it <laughs> yeah. will be again. That's the beauty of it. <laughs> <laughs> I had dinner at a lovely Scottish place. The time is 1893, and novelist and inventor H.G. Wells invites you to join him on a flight from London to San Francisco. In under a minute, you will be transported to a bizarre and fantastic new age. Today. Time after time. For H.G. Wells, the modern world offers a spectacular array of revelations, embarrassments, and delights. Well, hello there. Hello. What's up, Doc? I beg your pardon? You were saying, where to? Uh, could you please take me as quickly as possible to the Hyatt? But Wells has not come here as a tourist. His visit will be somewhat more dangerous. For he is pursuing Jack the Ripper, a villain who has eluded his fate by escaping into time. Ninety years ago, I was a freak. Today, I'm an amateur. <laughs> I'm obliged to take you back to face the consequences of your acts. You take me back. How do you propose to do that? By force? Be reasonable, John. We don't belong here. A 19th century gentleman one. You don't close your eyes. And a 20th century woman. One neither to you. Join forces to capture a criminal from the past at large in the modern world. But even more than they want him, he needs them. You throw me the key and I'll release the girl. On your honor, John, you have my word as a gentleman. I would have expected that you'd notice by now that I am not a gentleman. Say goodbye. Goodbye, Herbert. You haven't instructed him in the use of one of these machines, have you? H.G. it's checkmate and you've lost again. A romantic adventure, a breathless chase around the world and across a century. Time after time. Um, it, it's not a film that, that did particularly well at the, uh, at the box office, uh, but for those of us who did see it theatrical, it was a real gift and a surprise. And 
a love letter to genre and uh, it promised better things to come from its young writer director nick meyer and uh uh just a huge fan of this movie i also have to say that oh go ahead i was just gonna say i mean i when i was a kid i was obsessed with this movie from the first time i saw a television spot for it and i was too young to go and see it but i was just endlessly fascinated because i remember it opened with malcolm mcdowell and he's at that dinner party and he is explaining how he has invented a machine that will allow you to travel through time right and then it kind of goes into the whole thing about how he's hunting for jack the ripper and i'm like whoa this is crazy it's like a freaking it's hg wells and it's like a matchup it's jack the ripper this is who's jack the ripper this is amazing and i didn't get to see it until it was on hbo uh, and I told this story in the 430 movie, but like, but I watched, this was basically all I watched one summer uh, when it, when it <laughs> finally <laughs> debuted on HBO. Like I spent a summer sitting around just watching this movie and Looker. That was, that was my summer. <laughs> there are worse ways to spend a summer. There really I, uh, are. I want to say that one of the things that never gets enough love about this movie is the score. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Miklos Rosa, obviously, um, uh, Nicholas Meyer comes from a family of musicians and he, the fact that he got Miklos Rosa to score this, this movie was a huge coup. And I, I've got a little bit of a story to tell about this as well. My first real job in the entertainment industry was I worked at Warner brothers and the time machine, a beautiful prop was hanging in the mill where they built flats and sets on the Warner lot. And it looked just like it looked in the time machine. Mm. And this this was in 1989, 1990. And I loved it. And I would take people there that I would give tours of the lot to and I would show them the, the time machine. And one day it was taken off the wall because it was, was hanging on the wall and they painted the whole thing gold and, and added a bunch of parts to it for a music video. And it looked terrible. You're, you're saying this was the time machine from time after time. Yes, the time machine from time after time. Because you said it was from the time machine. Oh, uh, well, it was the, it's the time machine. I mean, it's the time machine from this movie, from the, movie. The, actual, the actual time machine prop. The actual stone tablets. And, and I have to say, it was beautiful. <laughs> it was absolutely a, actually a very beautiful prop. And when I saw what they did to it, because they had taken it down and they, I guess they painted it in the mill, I, I didn't realize. I, I was like, how do you? This is cultural vandalism. Yeah. And I never saw it again. Well, you'll see it in the future, though. I love this movie, too. Yeah, look, it's great. And it was really uh, um, smart of um, Karen Moore uh, when she was, you know, trying to recommend somebody for Star Trek 2 to think about her friend Nick Meyer and this wonderful movie and for Hart Ben and Bob Salen to recognize the talent that this young Nick Meyer had after watching Time After Time. It's a terrific movie, and it would lead to even bigger and better things to come. Okay, number 43. We 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 had some big picks. Now we're going to get a little smaller with Darren Dockerman. Smaller with number forty-three. Um, what do you do when a famous scientist is uh, is shot and nearly assassinated? Um, do you take him to some skilled uh, uh, surgeons? Uh, no, it's too dangerous. What do you do? Well, luckily, you just happen to have a whole. Uh, slew of uh, trained scientists who have developed a way to miniaturize things and go down to a microscopic level. And in a tiny submarine, 
go through the bloodstream of this scientist and try and repair a blood clot in his brain. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun. It's one of the most uh, fun, serious science fiction movies uh, ever made. It's uh, 1966's Fantastic Voyage. You are listening to the sound of a completely new screen experience, a startling new kind of excitement. As 20th Century Fox plunges you into the most incredible adventure that man could ever achieve. To make a motion picture that crosses a new frontier may seem impossible today. Outer space, the depths of the sea, the bowels of the earth, the past, the future, all have been subjects for the camera. But now, a film called Fantastic Voyage has broken through in an unexpected direction to create an adventure of astonishing suspense and beauty. One of the miracles of the universe. Its vital new story sweeps down from the sky. Then, it drops the bottom out of the world you know and understand. As a beleaguered nation desperate for survival launches a journey you can never erase from your memory. We need you for security purposes, Mr. Grant. They know they failed to kill Banish. Security thinks they'll try again, first chance they get. A woman has no place on a mission I of this kind. I insist on taking my technician. You'll take along who I assign. Don't tell me who I'm going to work with. Four men and a beautiful girl, off on a fantastic voyage actually entering inside the human body, exploring an unknown universe, unknown dangers. They're tightening. I can't breathe. 24 seconds left. After that, you're in danger of attack. Come on. It's sheer suicide for all of us. You are there with them, sharing a breakthrough in motion pictures. If you thought it was too late to discover something entirely new on the screen, Fantastic Voyage will be a stunning experience. For you are going where no man or camera has ventured before. And when you come out, you may never look at yourself in the same way again. And I tell you, I mean, even even besides Raquel Welch and her uh, and her uh, fantastic uh, figure, um, as small as it is in this movie, um, besides her, it is so much fun. I mean, Whit Bissell for crying out loud! You have mm-hmm. Whit Bissell in this movie, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, he made has, everything better. He <laughs> makes everything better. Uh, Stephen <laughs> Boyd, Edmund O'Brien, uh, the great Donald Pleasance as a uh, as a really bad baddie. Um, it's so good, it's so fun seeing them, you know, go through the whole process of shrinking down the Proteus, which is the name of the submarine, uh, beautifully designed by Harper Goff, who designed the Nautilus for 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, also directed by Richard Fleischer, who directed Fantastic Voyage. Um, uh, yeah, he directed the best uh, sub- submarine movies uh, ever made. Uh, and 
it's so much fun, just their whole process of shrinking this, putting it on a tiny little forklift, moving it over here, shrinking it more, putting it in a, a, a giant uh, syringe, and then shrinking that down to size. It's so much fun just to see the process of finally injecting it into this poor uh, shaved bald guy. Um, it's really <laughs> so much fun. And when you get inside the body, it starts to get really weird. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it's crazy and it's fun. And it's uh, a, a crazy wild adventure inside the human body. And I love it. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great movie. Watched a million times on the 4.30 movie back in New York. Uh, and, and it was always remarkably enjoyable. It's one of those that's amazing. It hasn't been remade yet. You think it's such an odd. I mean, Inner Space did the comedic version, but it's amazing that the, I know James Cameron had dabbled with this. Uh, Dean Devlin and Roland Emmerich had dabbled with it, but it never, it never happened. Yeah. You know, it's also one of those movies like Logan's Run. I mean, I saw it when I was a fairly young lad and it really leaves an impression because the, the very premise of it, like shrinking down for a kid watching something like this, it's irresistible. And I remember just, you know, bouncing off the walls when I first saw this movie and the visual effects. I mean, they built these huge sets, yeah. live action sets mm-hmm. of inside the body, you know, and the, <laughs> they have to go out and there's blood corpuscles or whatever strange plastic inflatable surfaces yeah just amazing and as a kid this movie really leaves an impression and it was something that you can't between something like this and planet of the apes and logan's run between the ages of like five and ten when you had a steady diet of these things you had the 430 movie i had sci-fi theater uh on sunday afternoons watching movies like this really i think solidified for us our lifelong love of genre cinema one of the interesting one of the interesting things about this movie is that because of the way it was produced and because of the look of the film the inside the body things aren't horrific like they would actually be in real life (laughs) we are now and and it's it's more yeah it's more of a, a stage production uh than it is a documentary and i think that 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 makes it so much more fun and palatable mm-hmm. and enjoyable for kids, honestly. So yeah, what you're saying is David Cronenberg's Fantastic Voyage might be interesting, but a difficult watch. Wow, I'd love to see that. <laughs> <laughs> I'd kind of love to see that, too. Oh, Wasn't there God. like a TV show or a cartoon or some damn thing? There was a cartoon called yep. Fantastic Voyage. Uh, oh. It had a, a different crew and a, a flying submarine. Uh, that could get uh, miniaturized. And uh, uh, it was uh, very far removed from uh, the actual movie because they went off on uh, other adventures that uh, only cartoons could uh, experience. Uh, but uh, it was uh, it was fun too. And I remember watching that too as a kid. Yeah. Well, um, our next pick, number 42, combines two of my favorite things from the 70s, sci-fi and conspiracy thrillers. And this one is a crackerjack conspiracy thriller dealing with sci-fi. It returns Peter Himes to the countdown. Who would have thought that Peter Himes would be uh, all over our countdown? But he is. And uh, this is the third film from writer-director Peter Himes. This is Capricorn One. This is Capricorn Control. We're at T-minus 30 seconds. At the present time, all systems are go. All lights are green. 
They're looking for a reason to cancel the program. We can't afford another screw-up. Pull the space pads. Final checks have been completed. The access arms are swinging. The final retract position. We found out two months ago it won't work. You guys would all be dead in three weeks. T-minus ten seconds. Nine. Eight. We have ignition. Six. Five. We have outboard engines. Three. We have inboard engines. One. Zero. We have a launch commit. We have a liftoff in 35 minutes after the hour. What if man's greatest technological achievement... Ready, slow-mo. I take this step in the journey of peace for all mankind. ...was a fraud. Hey! Slow-mo. You sound so close. It's hard to believe you really are that far away in space. It's hard for me to believe it, too. What if something went wrong? signals couldn't have come from 300 miles. Which signals? The television transmissions. I'm a story and I'm helping you. This can't be happening. What if someone found out? Something's wrong. Something big. They know I'm onto it and they try to kill me. The most important event in recent history you have crossed the last great frontier. What if it never really happened? This is Capricorn One. Capricorn One, this is Houston. Capricorn One, we show red on the Something went wrong during re-entry. The spacecraft disintegrated within 12 seconds after the loss of the heat shield. We are dead. So many people have given so much. I say we get the hell out of here. Anybody disagree? <laughs> got to do is get to any city, any place there are people. They died striving for a goal. Get more personnel. They can't go too far on foot. And where do you want to go? I'm not sure. I'm looking for someone who's lost. No money. The whole world thinks they're dead. And the only way the truth can come out is if they live long enough to tell it. This hasn't already happened. How do we know it won't happen again? Capricorn One, of course, the story of our, the first expedition to Mars. There's only one problem. It doesn't work. And so the astronauts are escorted out of the capsule at zero hour. And uh, the mission is faked. And uh, it is just a terrific uh, crackerjack thriller uh, with James Brolin, um, uh, Sam Waterston, and O.J. Simpson. Uh, but the and real hero will surprise you. The real hero here, and he's not the hero, is Hal Holbrook, who gives such a memorable performance. Oh my god! Um, in in the film, and and uh, again, uh, this finally got a nice Blu-ray release a couple of years ago. Um, the the insanely good score by Jerry Goldsmith has been on CD for quite a while. Also uh, one of his best. 
And this is just a great film. And you, if you haven't seen it, you owe it to yourself to see Capricorn One. It's also got a great turn from Elliot Gould and Telly Savalas mm-hmm. is in this movie. Brenda Vaccaro. Yeah. Um, I mean, this movie really, really has it all. It's truly an exciting film. It's got some really great action sequences. There's a when the astronauts escape from the warehouse where they've been broadcasting from, they steal a Learjet and it's really a nail biting scene. And uh, this this is a this is a truly this is a great film all the way around. I love this movie. And if you like helicopters, forget Blue Thunder, forget Airwolf. See Capricorn One. It got some really scary helicopters. There is a uh, there is a behind the scenes B roll on YouTube somewhere mm-hmm. of them shooting uh, Capricorn One, and uh, they go into in depth of how they uh, uh, sort of wrangled those helicopters to be basically characters in the film, and mm-hmm. uh, it's so much fun to watch. But I love Capricorn One. Yeah, uh, yeah. It, this is one of those uh, movies that I taped off the air, uh, audio only, because I, I didn't have a VCR till I was in college. Um, but uh, and I loved it. I listened to it over and over again and uh, memorized Hal Holbrook's uh, speech. And uh, it's man, almost five it's minutes. So it's almost five minutes, but it's so good. What's Rebus. great is. He believes, you know, he's he's not an evil character. He's yeah. doing evil he things no because mm-hmm. he has no choice. He has no mm-hmm. other choice. Yeah. Yeah. And the and the and the vice president is so loathsome in this movie. It's just such yeah. a great not the president. Great, the vice the president. The vice president. And his yeah. plump. The vice president and his plump wife. <laughs> uh it, 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 no, this movie, I mean, this is infinitely quotable, and it has one of the great opening main titles ever written for a movie yeah it, it's also i think it's on hbo max right now so mm. if you uh you know you're listening to this and haven't seen it want to check it out why don't you uh check it out on hbo max because it's it's a you're gonna be uh, uh delighted if you've never seen it it's a, it's a great movie totally holds up and when, uh, it's uh, much better than the sequel capricorn 2 yeah capricorn 2 really lost all the uh, all the impetus of the first one all, um yeah just when, lost does, the when does alan funk come in and tell us we're all on canon camera <laughs> nobody will get that reference now that's the scary thing yeah no oh, that's true but okay they'll, they'll think it's from capricorn one number 41 rob burnett is turning japanese i really think so here I we go so. oh boy does this movie this is the movie that launched thousand pound animals across the planet earth more than no more than thousand pound animals <laughs> way more than billion pound animals uh this is the very first kaiju movie coming from Toho Studios from 1954. Not, not the Raymond Burr Americanized version, but the original Japanese version, Gojira, or Godzilla, King of the Monsters. は
青年科学者芹沢が秘めた恐るべき発明とは離せ長年の研究の成果を何てことなさるんです離せThat made a huge impression on me because unlike some people forget that this movie is played very straight. It is a very serious movie where lots of people die. And and Rob was a big Ironside fan growing up. Yeah. Um, yeah. Who isn't? It, it, All the kids uh, love Ironside. Th- this, this was a, you know, some people say that Godzilla might have been a metaphor for the United States. Um, but this, I, I don't see it quite like that. But when you watch this movie and you think about where the, the Showa era of kaiju films went, there was a lot of it became pretty goofy. But this film plays it absolutely straight. There's really an undercurrent of terror in this film that that humanity, we have no control over this, even though our own technology, the oxygen destroyer is is what saves us in the end. Uh, this film has a real the power of God feel to it that, that our folly, human folly will bring this sort of Damocles down upon us in the guise of Godzilla uh, or many other Kaiju uh, monsters that followed. But this film has a, a real power, a sincerity, an awe to it. Uh, And, and Godzilla, because it's in black and white doesn't, it's not the goofy Godzilla you might remember from mid 60s Godzilla films. This is a, a very serious minded film that um, is really about respecting the power of nature. And when we are meddling with forces that maybe we shouldn't, such as nuclear power, this is the result. And um, I think it's a wonderful movie. Yeah. And a great Blu ray from Criterion. I love that movie. And. Um... Look, I, I love the, the the Americanized version when I was a kid with Raymond Burkus. Hey, I did love Ironside, uh, but you know, I I love the 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 original Japanese version of this, which I remember when I got it, when I watched it. It happens to be the the first movie that my then like ridiculously uh, young eldest son ever saw. Uh, which was kind of a strange choice for me. But I will say that uh, he developed a what has continued to be a lifelong fascination, uh, love for kaiju movies. Um, I will never forget him trying to explain to me 
um, you know, the Showa era and like what his what he thought the best movie of the Showa era was and like how that's different from the Hisei era and all of these other things which you think are fascinating. Um, and I think I've talked about this maybe on the 430 movie, but I actually I differ with the popular interpretation of uh, Godzilla of Godra and, and what it actually means. Um, because I don't know, I don't think that it, it necessarily um, is, is specifically about um, the, uh, about the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki out of context, right? And what I mean by that is the history of Japan is the history of a tiny little island country that could, um, that is constantly beset by natural disaster, by forces far beyond their control, whether it is volcanic eruptions, you know, tsunamis, you name it, nature is trying to destroy the island of Japan. And the cultural myth of Japan is that it is the resilience and ingenuity of the Japanese people in the face of a crisis that allows them to survive, rise above, and reemerge from the ashes. Um, it is, it's actually, I think, um, it's, it's not a story about destruction. It's a, it's a story about the necessary cycle of, of rebirth that repeats itself again and again and again in, uh, in Japanese history. Um, and so I think you have to look at it you know, in that, again, in that, in that context of, of what the experience of, of that island uh, and that island nation has been. But that's just, that's, that's neither here nor there. All I know is I like movies with big freaking monsters in them. Um, you know, heck man, I, I named my, uh, my, my production company, like, you know, Kaiju Boulevard, like, <laughs> screw it, man. I love Kaiju. They're used. They're <laughs> well, I have, I have awesome. to say too, uh, again, as a uh, Akira Watanabe, the art director of the film, did say that they combined elements of a Tyrannosaurus, an Iguanodon, a Stegosaurus, and an alligator into this chimera creature. And one of the things that I love about Godzilla is when you see this as a child, and a lot of these films you know, came to us as children, you can't help but think that Godzilla is the coolest thing you've ever seen. Very different. I mean, King Kong is a lover. King Kong was in love with with uh, Andaro, but 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 Godzilla is a fighter and a scrappy fighter and, and a parent. So uh, the, the <laughs> a good dad, by the way, a, a good dad. Or was he a good mom? You know, uh, yeah. the 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 uh, yeah, it, it was just one of those things. Again, when you see these at a young age, I don't even know if it's possible anymore to feel the same way. And I have to point out that. If you go to the last Godzilla movie that Toho made, Shin Godzilla, mm -hmm. it is also a terrific, terrific movie where Godzilla is shown as a force of nature to be dealt with, like what Ashley was saying, by basically the Japanese equivalent of FEMA. And how are the Japanese, how's the Japanese government gonna 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 defend against this natural disaster that is Godzilla? It's a wonderful film if you haven't seen Shin Godzilla. Mm -hmm. Watch them both as a double feature. Watch them both, exactly. And now that brings us to a wonderful film starring Kurt Russell and James Spader uh, with, with a, what is such a novel um, sci-fi premise. Of course, I'm talking about Will and Emmerich and Dean Devlin's Stargate. It has been buried for thousands of years. A mystery. 
a secret. A threshold to the future. Where'd you find this? I've, I've never seen anything like this. One man will break the code and open the door. Well, this should read Stargate. That was in front of us the whole time. The other will lead the way. Why are you here? I'm here in case you succeed. Jackson's identified the seventh symbol. Backup storage, reserve power, on. What is that? It's your Stargate. We've opened a doorway to a world we know nothing about. Theme's locked itself onto a point somewhere in the Kalium galaxy. It's on the other side of the known universe. Your turn now. They prepared for danger. Begin final evacuation. They expected the unknown. Stabilizing system. Initiating commencement sequence. But they could never have imagined this. shoot anything that comes down that ramp. Your job here is to realign the Stargate. Can you do that or not? I can't. What the hell is going on? My orders were simple. Track down signs of any possible danger. Well, I found some. I can't make it work without the seven symbol. seven minutes now the most amazing discovery of our time jackson wait for me is about to become the most extraordinary adventure of all time kurt russell james spader jay davidson stargate which inspired nine thousand seasons of a tv series and 400 spinoffs but this is the original movie and still the undefeated champion. Um, just the, the, the entire premise of uh, being transported uh, across the universe through a, uh, a mystical Stargate. And of course, um, the casting of Kurt Russell and James Spader at the time, uh, you know, James Spader, I mean, from, uh, you know, teen heartthrob and less than zero and, and Kurt Russell, who at the time really wasn't getting much work. And they're so good. Uh, they're both so good. And, and of course, it marked the return of Jay, uh, Jay uh, Davidson, who had made such an impression in the crying game. And uh, if you're all very good, maybe one day Dean Devlin will come on the show and tell you stories about the making of Stargate, because uh, <laughs> there are some incredible stories about the movie, which I can't repeat here. But uh, it was a real revelation. It came out the same summer as a uh, same year uh, time as uh, Star Trek uh, Generations. And, you know, pound for pound, I enjoyed the hell out of Stargate a lot more than I enjoyed Star Trek Generations. Me too. It Me also too. played into the whole idea of ancient astronauts. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I because when I was growing up in the 70s, I went and saw like the Sun Classic Pictures, the Outer Space Connection. You know, the lines at Nazca and, and the, the pyramid. Chariots and, of the gods. Uh, chariots of the gods, you know, and 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 this play, this was like, that's they were right. Yeah. And I love that. And a, another movie that has an unbelievable score oh the, beautiful the, the yeah. like david score. arnold it's mm -hmm. so good the score for this one and you know what this movie again 
even though it has a bigger budget, it it has the joys. I mean, when I say B movie, I only use that as a term, but there was a a studio. This had to this this has an indie sci-fi bent to it and you know roland and dean made it it wasn't necessarily made from a studio you know they had to raise all kinds of no they made it with mario cassar and then it was picked up for distribution by mgm yeah and it's uh this movie's a lot of fun there's a lot of it's the exact kind of movie that made me love science fiction films in the first place and seeing it again i i used to think when i i saw this in the theater like four times yeah well you look at people like david tuey and dean and these are people who love science fiction and you see it in every frame of these movies. So um, just, just, just a delight. Um, number 39, number nine, number nine, number nine, it's Ashley Miller. Uh, number 39 is, well, the number nine is uh, very significant uh, in, uh, in film 39. It's a, um, it's a it's a pseudo documentary, uh, at least at first, uh, that chronicles the difficulties inherent to um, immigration, alien immigration, uh, and by that we mean actual aliens uh, into uh, South Africa. I'm referring to Neil Blomkamp uh, and uh, his uh, his his magnum opus, I would say, uh, District Nine. Nobody comes back late at night anymore. They have more security. The government noticed that they were moving into new areas. That's when things started to get out of hand. They don't belong here. They're spending so much money to keep them here when they could be spending it on other things. At least they're keeping them separate from us. A lot of bad things started to happen. They must just go. I don't know where they go. They must just go. We're at the breaking point. People are living in fear. Why are you here? Why don't you just leave? How do your weapons work? I just want everyone watching this right now to learn from what has happened. Um, District 9 was uh, was a 2009 release. I think um, at least if you lived in L.A., you couldn't move uh, without seeing the, uh, the the billboard campaign, like the uh, the bus campaign, like, you know, just District 9 was was everywhere. It was it was it was quite an attempt to uh, to get um, you know, the sort of the thought leaders of the film industry behind the idea of this little movie coming out. And it turns out um, it was it was really smart. It was really cool. Um, and, uh, you know, it's I would say that um, that the documentary style of it, which basically follows sort of a, a mid-level office worker, um, sort of slowly uh, becoming um, the aliens that uh, that have sort of uh, become like the, uh, the the unwanted neighbor, like you know the sort of the trash uh, down the street, um, and what that does to him um, is really fascinating. I think it becomes uh, it becomes less interesting once the documentary style is shed and it becomes more of a film. Um, but when it's committed to its concept, 
it's pretty great. Well, I have to also say that, again, you know, the the sci-fi B-movie elements of this, mm-hmm. the, the prawns, the aliens are great. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it, it builds on all the way back to something like V when when the, the image of a giant alien spacecraft floating over a human city, mm-hmm. you know, for, and and you've got Charlito Copley, who 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 begins this horrific transformation. You know, it's it's uh, this this film is really it, it is another great example of why we love science fiction, because it has a great premise. It has the the reality of it, the verisimilitude of this. You, you buy every every minute of this movie, like of course. And it, I always thought it was kind of funny that, you know, the aliens couldn't, they couldn't like they didn't they don't know Earth, and the idea that they parked themselves over in South Africa always cracked me up. You know, they that's where the ship wound up, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, I thought that was terrific. And even though sometimes the social commentary along the lines of they live get a little heavy handed, I think it's a wonderful, wonderful movie. Well, for number 38, the question was, you are going to have some Star Trek on your Star Trek podcast today. Well, Star <laughs> Trek's back. With and the voyage than ever and bigger than ever, because there be whales here. For Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. Avoid the planet Earth at all costs. We are under the attack of an orbiting probe. Notify all stations. Starfleet emergency. Red alert. Earth is on the edge of destruction. We cannot survive unless a way can be found to respond to the probe. The key to saving the future. Spock, you're talking about the end of every life on Earth. Can be found only in the past. We're going to attempt time travel. Sulu, take us home. These are the voyages of the crew of the Starship Enterprise. Judging by the pollution content of the atmosphere, I believe we have arrived at the latter half of the 20th century. Stardate 1986. San Francisco. Our own world is waiting for us to save it. They have 24 hours. Everybody remember where we parked. Break up. To complete their mission. It looked like a cadet review. We will beam in tonight, collect the photons, and beam out. I want you all to be very careful without being discovered. We have an intruder. All right, who are you? You're not exactly catching us at our best. That much is certain. This is an extremely primitive and paranoid culture. What does it mean, exact change? Many of their customs will doubtless take us by surprise. We're ready for beam out. My transporter power is down to minimal. I've got to bring in one at a time. You're from outer space. No, I'm from Iowa. I only work in outer space. Let's do our job and get out of here. Freeze! Take off, can you hear me? Freeze! I've lost it. Who are you? You can't. Our next stop is the 23rd century. Full power now, sir. Shields at maximum. Steady. Hold on tight, lassie. Can we make breakaway speed? That's all I can give you! Book eight. Book nine. Now. Star Trek IV. The Voyage Home. A uh, small, uh, delightful confection, which has entertained fans the, 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 the world over, not only Star Trek fans, but a general audience. It was 
for a long time, the most successful Star Trek film of all time. Uh, directed by Leonard Nimoy. This is the one with the whales. And uh, it's a little screwball comedy. It captures the fun of episodes like Troubles, Trouble with Tribbles and Piece of the Action. And it, 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 and it also is a stunning homage to Time After Time, our number 44 homage, film. <laughs> Rip-off. Desperate adaptation. Of Writ- written by uh, Hart Bennett and, and Nick Meyer. Um, much like Return of the King, it has about six too many endings. But it's hard not to like this very lovable installment in the Star Trek film saga. It is. I think, you know, it actually holds up. I, uh, I went to see it on the big screen um, about two months ago. Um, there was just like a Fathom Events thing, like they'll show, you know, uh, the kind of you know, back catalog movies. And I took Caden uh, and it was actually uh, his first exposure to Star Trek. And, you know, here's a kid who was like raised. I know it's like, look, I, I feel like like people are thinking, wow, Ashley, what's wrong with you? You're 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 a Trexpert. How have you not introduced your child to Star Trek yet? I tell you what, my philosophy as a father was my kid needs to come to it on his own because if I force it down his throat, he's just not going to get into it. He won't really dig it and um, it'll just feel awkward and weird. So he really dug Star Trek four. And this is a kid who was raised on Marvel movies, right? It's like he is a kid of the, the modern era. He thought it was really fun. He really, really liked characters, which I think is the most important thing. Um, you know, my only real knock on the movie, uh, you know, other than like, look, it's, it's a little on the slight side. And it does have six too many endings is the score makes me want to punch a kitten in the face. But, <laughs> <laughs> but that's really, you know, I just I, I lament that it didn't have a better score. No, it's a terrible score. Well, you know. a more appropriate score. The yeah. music itself isn't bad. It's just not Star Trek, and it doesn't feel yeah. like an adventure story. There's a couple yeah. of good tracks, though. That's cartoony. It's an awful score. And, you know, basically, Leonard, you know, hired his friend, and Leonard Roseman, who obviously had done some great work on other movies, but it's not a good score. And uh, it has that bizarre paper mache time travel sequence, uh, the paper mache heads, like they're pulling a, a, a some kind of robbery or something. And I will and... say, well, go ahead. <laughs> no, I, no. I, I, ILMs, ILMs. This, the, the visual effects work in this is uh, definitely C team work. Uh, there's a lot of shaky mats, especially the Cetacean Institute. And um, while there's a couple of really nicely composed effect shots, I think the effects in this film are bargain basement oh i don't i disagree i mean you know how can you say that when star trek 5 was yet to come the whale yeah. you know the whale stuff is great a lot of that is animatronics not all yeah. that is actual whale footage that stuff looks great i think that you know the 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 uh the log in space whatever the hell that thing is, log, is log, uh, log. looks great oh i like that but i yeah. think a lot of the earth effects are there a little bit as we've heard on this show it was because of this film that ilm didn't get fucked yeah, 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 exactly. Because they wanted to charge for changes yeah. in, in, in shots, as Rick, uh, as uh, Ralph Winter uh, uh, told us on this podcast. I, you know, I do want to say that, you know, there's that great story about how uh, Dawn Steele wanted to subtitle what the, uh, the log the was, was saying that. because people won't understand. Uh, it's like, exactly. And, you know, thank God Leonard and, and Harv stood their ground and uh, refused to give in to the studio's request 
to subtitle the whale song. Hello, people of Earth. <laughs> I am looking for the whales. How are you? Oh, I will maybe say I'll too, call though, it that... ground. I wonder if the ground wants to be my friend. Oh, wait, no, that's a completely different movie. Never mind. I just watched Orca. I was very disturbed. <laughs> there's a there's a lot of great humor though in this in this film. There's some there's some pretty stupid things, but there's some great moments with Spock, with Nimoy and Shatner, mm-hmm, the, the mm-hmm. Italian, whether you have Italian. Yep. Uh, weren't these a gift from Dr. McCoy? Well, they will be again. You know, it's the beauty of it. That's yeah. the, Gracie is some, pregnant. There's you. some great, there's just some great stuff in, in the film. And, and I think that I have to tell you, I, when I was in college, I took out an emergency loan to buy a plane ticket to fly to meet my friend Taylor White, who had tickets to go see this movie at the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences Museum on Wilshire Boulevard. And that was the first time that I saw it. And I was made fun of mercilessly by my family at Thanksgiving that year. They're like, you you got an emergency loan to fly to California and see a Star Trek movie? I mean, I think <laughs> the, Star the, Trek movie. It was it was an un, it was unrelenting and un, it was just That's I guess hysterical. I deserved it. I deserved well, one it. One of the things I always loved that Nimoy would say about this movie, and it's true when you really think about it, is this movie did not have a villain. It did not have a black hat, which the studio always wanted. And, you know, the, you know, the, if anybody's the villain, it's humanity. Yeah. And I, I love that. I love that you can make a Star Trek movie work without a villain. Um, and, uh, you know, or even an antagonist. And, and so later on, when they kept wanting, you know, Khan and all these movies, not literally, but like, who's the con of this film? It's amazing because well, Star Trek four did it so successfully without a con. No, the con in this film is the uh, guy who runs the Cetacean Institute. That's right. <laughs> he tasks us. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's so, an Obi Dick reference. So. You know, that brings us to Never number 37. And Darren will prove to us that life will find a way. Uh, yeah, it, it does. Um, life does find a way, uh, especially if you want to... Uh, uh, make a movie that uh, takes a whole bunch of people who are uh, talented uh, animators and uh, stop motion artists and turn them into dinosaurs. Uh, and that's what this film does. 1993's Jurassic Park uh, took a whole industry and set it back into the Stone Age. There it is. Welcome. To Jurassic Park. We've made living biological attractions so astounding that they'll capture the imagination of the entire planet. The most phenomenal discovery of our time. How'd you do this? Becomes the greatest adventure of all time. Can I touch it? Sure. Universal Pictures presents. You feel that? Hold on to your butts. A Steven Spielberg film. Senses are failing all over the park. Yeah, that's nice. Gotta go. An adventure. Look out! No! I can't get Jurassic Park back online. 65 million years in the making. Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park is another uh, Michael Crichton story. Yet another version of Westworld. 
but uh, a much more successful version because this uh, hinges on a very interesting sort of uh, science fiction uh, uh, sleight of hand that uh, makes it makes you believe that they could bring back dinosaurs of every kind. And uh, by getting the DNA out of ancient mosquitoes encased in amber, um, that uh, they could find a way to generate the DNA for dinosaurs and grow them in frog's eggs. Um, it's really uh, fun. It's a fun premise. It's, uh, it's great for every eight-year-old kid who loves dinosaurs. Um, and every fifty-six-year-old uh, kid who loves dinosaurs, um, it, you know, it, it is definitely a. This is a response to King Kong by the uh, the generations that grew up with it. Uh, this is their attempt to uh, to uh, one up the masters, and I think they uh, they accomplish it. I mean, uh, I heard when when Ray Harryhausen saw this, he uh, he had tears in his eyes because he thought it was so beautifully done. Um, so that's a lovely story. And uh, the lovely story in Jurassic Park is this crazy old man wanted to have a park with real flea circus dinosaurs in it. And uh, he's uh, he's well-meaning, but he's kind of um, well, he's kind of foolhardy. And uh, the uh, the voice of reason uh, in it is uh, uh, played by uh, Jeff Goldblum. And uh, he says, uh, uh, your scientists uh, were so excited about the fact that they could do this that they didn't think if they should. And it's, it's, it's uh, a, a cautionary tale about uh, believing scientists too much in this uh, age of believing scientists. Um, and, oh, you uh, should. You should believe the scientists. Unless they're building dinosaurs. Unless they're building yeah. dinosaurs, yeah. <laughs> but I would believe scientists. They know more than you do. I don't mean you, Darren. I mean the audience, general people. Right. Unless they're building dinosaurs. Unless they're building, building dinosaurs. dinosaurs. That's the one exception. Don't listen to scientists if they're building dinosaurs. Otherwise, trust science. But you see, if they're smart, they won't tell you they're building scientists. Or You know, I think a lot of people sure. are probably, uh, you know, wondering at home why this isn't higher on our list. But I'll tell you, I think it has some virtuoso sequences, as is uh, Spielberg's uh, you know, uh, amazing ability to use cinema uh, yeah. to construct these amazing uh, sequences. And then I, I love the Mr. DNA bit. I think that is just a wonderfully <laughs> gonzo fun DNA. sequence. But, but other know, than that, it's I, not I, I, a I don't very think it's good that, movie. It's, it's not. not a very good movie. It has, it has great um, unsubmersible units in it that yeah. are, 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 you know, great moments that uh you can't you can't yes. beat absolutely connective tissue however is really flimsy and the reason for this happening is really dumb and uh it's uh it's it's kind of like westworld in that sense in that it's it's a great idea but the whole thing isn't fleshed out enough so that it's completely believable never trust wayne knight <laughs> never ever <laughs> trust wayne knight okay Number 36. Would you like to know more, Ashley? I would like to know more. Um, hey, kids, we're going to war. So number 36 uh, is uh, Paul Verhoeven and uh, Ed Neumeier's interpretation of Robert Heinlein's classic science fiction novel, Starship Troopers. 
cause worth fighting for. But in the future, the greatest threat to our survival will not be man at all. of tomorrow must travel across the stars to defend our world. We are a generation commanded by fate to defend humankind. Everyone fights, no one quits. We are going in with first wave. You smash the entire area, you kill anything that has more than two legs, you get me? We get you, sir! But they will face an enemy more devastating than any ever imagined. Roughneck 2-0. Render attack, sir. We need retrieval now. Someone made a damn mistake. The bugs laid a trap for us, didn't they? Prepare for battle and journey to the front lines of the next frontier. Kill them all! Starship Troopers. Now, I say that it's their interpretation of it, because the truth of the matter is that aside from a, a lot of kind of very sort of superficial elements, it doesn't really resemble um, the book, I think, in the in the most important ways. I'm not necessarily sure that uh, that Verhoeven and Neumeier really understood the book, but that's OK, because they're telling a story all their own. It's Paul Verhoeven is uh, making this amazing uh, satire. Um, and, uh, you know, as I, I think at the time people didn't quite appreciate the satire he was making. I mean, he's basically got like this cast of beautiful people led by Casper Van Dien and uh, Denise Richards, who once played a nuclear scientist, but trust the scientists, uh, trust Denise Richards, um, who are, uh, who basically let, recruited. Let me explain. Denise Richards was not a scientist the way after Starship Troopers. So that's true. We she did had not to trust her at that point. No, no, but but in but in Starship Troopers, she was a pilot, and the reason why in in Starship Troopers women tended to be pilots was because pilots uh, required greater mathematics skills, and Denise Richards became a pilot because she was amazing at math. So you know, just throwing that out there. Uh, anyway, look. The this movie is maybe Gonzo. she was the, the action is cool like it's um it's you just sometimes can't believe what you're watching it's like you have like you know Michael Ironside eating scenery like as fast you know as like as the sets can be built um you know it's you've got Clancy Brown like Clancy Browning it up you know it's uh <laughs> and then you've got Doogie Howser and he's like and he's dressed up like in a freaking SS uniform. Um, it's interesting. There's like a great uh, bit, like it, it's a uh, well worth your watch to watch the, uh, the watch this movie on Blu-ray with the director's commentary, Paul Verhoeven. Um, just kind of listen to Paul Verhoeven, talk about this film, talk about like how some of the reaction against it was about how it was like, you know, very fascist and all these other things. And that Verhoeven pointing out that no, it's actually a satire against those things. 
He's like, and and Van Tuki Hauser comes out and he's dressed up like he's in the SS. It's bad. It's bad. You're <laughs> supposed to know that it is bad. <laughs> you know, it's like you do know that it's bad. Um, but it's actually very, very good. Uh, kind of unappreciated at the time. I think the studio thought that they were getting a big crowd-pleasing action movie. That was not the movie Paul Verhoeven was interested in making. Um, and I think that we're all the better for it. I, I say that as, as somebody who loves both this film um, and the novel that it's based on that is wildly divergent from it. Rob, you're also a big fan of this movie, aren't you? I'm a huge, huge fan of this movie. I'm a huge Paul Verhoeven fan. Um, you know, I think that that this film could only have been made by Verhoeven. And mm -hmm. the I love the idea that even the, that that this movie is about how adults know nothing. <laughs> All the adults in this film are either eviscerated by their time in the mobile infantry becoming citizens or they're completely clueless like Casper Vendian's um, parents. And and I I think that this film was everyone was watching it thinking after especially after Robocop and, and Total Recall and Basic Instinct and Showgirls that this was supposed to be straightforward. And the idea that that it is clearly, it's a send up of so many different things in a very clever way that a lot of people just missed all of that when it came out. And it it I think it's aged very well. Mm -hmm. And again, it is a it is a wildly entertaining, entertaining movie if you kind of understand where it's coming from. And um, I think it's still one of the greatest examples of both CG and model work ever put on film. Mm -hmm, and it, mm -hmm. it, it truly there's some really incredible sci fi imagery like the, the, the Alamo, the siege uh, in broad daylight against a, a horde of these creatures That's is one of the great sci fi. It's one of the great sci-fi set pieces ever put on film. Yeah. And um, uh, the creatures are fearsome. The characters can, are hilarious. And the, um, the creatures can fire. They have bugs that can fire plasma weapons out of their butts that are so powerful. They can cross interstellar distances <laughs> and hit the earth. Now, why did they evolve this way? Who can know? Um, but it's cool, man. It's cool. Yeah, it's no, got a great it, score. Holy shit, man. I was going to say, Basil, Basil Polidorus' score for this. Oh. Uh, everything and about Bobby it. The drop is one of the great cues of all time. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and uh, also the actors, the whole, it's got the delicious Dina Meyer in it. You've got Clancy Brown in it. You've got Michael Ironside in it. Brenda Strong, who's a favorite character actress of mine, shows up in this movie. Uh, there's a whole lot to love about yeah. this. No, no, it's great. Yeah. Rob, I, I, you know what? I have nothing to add because you said it all. I, I completely <laughs> agree with everything you said. I love this movie to death. Um, I, you know, I love it. You know, it, it's subversive take on fascism and uh, it's just wildly entertaining. So, OK, number 35. Darren has a film in mind. He's going to share with us now. Number 35 is a deep, serious sci-fi movie masquerading as an anti-romantic comedy. Um, it is 2004's Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Hello. 
I'm Howard Mirziak, founder and president of Lacuna Incorporated. Why remember a destructive love affair? Here at Lacuna, we have perfected a safe, effective technique for the focused erasure of troubling memories. In a matter of hours, our patented non-surgical procedure will rid you of painful memories and allow you a new and lasting peace of mind you'd never imagined possible. This is a hoax, right? I assure you, no. Is there any risk of brain damage? It's on a par with a night of heavy drinking. Nothing you'll miss. and uh, uh, co-written by Michelle Gondry, uh, uh, co-written by Charlie Kaufman and starring Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet as the, uh, uh, as the erased lovers. Uh, when, you know, this, uh, this tells the story of uh, when you have a bad love affair, just get them out of your mind, literally. And uh, there's a, a way where every memory of this other person is erased from your mind. And how do you deal with that when it doesn't go exactly the way you plan? Um, it's uh, really fascinating. It's heartbreaking. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's actually hopeful in a very dark way. Uh, but uh, it's really well done. And it's, uh, it's engaging from the first frame to the last. And it's, uh, I, I, I can only imagine how interesting it would have been uh, with someone other than Jim Carrey, because I think Jim Carrey gives a sort of uh, uh, insanity uh, twist to this that I don't think I, I don't think is appropriate for some reason. Yeah, it's a little bit of a hat on a hat. Yeah, it, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but I just I, imagine if a uh, you know quote unquote uh, straighter actor, uh, more serious actor, had been put in there. Um, I can only imagine, but uh, I, I like this film a lot, and it's uh, it's very engaging, and uh, it, it makes you think a lot afterwards. Well, when they erase this uh, movie from your mind, they could put Joe Montagna in for you. Um, I actually, <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I actually hate uh, uh, I hated all of Jim Carrey's uh, dumb, dopey comedies, but but I love him in stuff like The Truman Show and Eternal Sunshine. Well, so I have no Truman problem. Show, he's great. I have no I'm just problem saying, there's, a, there's a quality in it that uh, I think spoils a little bit of it for me. Yeah, yeah. Okay, spoiler alert. So uh, I, I, I think it's a terrific film from Michelle Gondry. Had a huge impact when it came out. Like It's another movie that sort of has slipped out of the public consciousness. It's been erased really, from our memories. <laughs> it has. And it's such <laughs> a good movie. It's really a shame. Um, beautifully directed. Uh, very heartfelt. And... Um, uh, you know, from the brilliant pen of uh, that crazy, what's his name? Charlie Kaufman. <laughs> Charlie Kaufman. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, only somebody like uh, Charlie Kaufman, the uh, writer of such films as being John Malkovich could come up with something 
as crazy as this, but yet it still has, you know, all the heart and emotion uh, that you would expect. Unless it's in Charlie the Kaufman writing a screenplay about a guy who can't figure out how to start writing a screenplay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Number 34, Paul Verhoeven is back. And bum, Peter bum, Weller bum, is on the beat bum, bum, in one. Bum, bum, what, and Basil Polidorus is back, too. Bum, bum, um, one of the most dopely titled movies of all time. Boy, when Orion Pictures put this out, everyone had the expectation. They thought they knew what this movie was. It's about a cop that's a robot. It's like Holmes and Yo-Yo or something, right? <laughs> but uh... Ooh, there's, a, there's a reference no one's going to get. <laughs> it's John Shuck on the case. But, Holmes uh, and Yo-Yo, that's outrageous. But, you know, Paul Verhoeven had done all these great <laughs> Dutch films and then did uh, um, uh, uh, Blood. Uh, what was it? Flesh and Blood? Flesh and Blood? Rob, Flesh and Blood. Well, Flesh and Blood it, was his first yeah, film. Flesh yeah. and Blood for Ryan. English. Barely got a release here. It's actually a terrific little movie. It's really, it's like a really twisted little movie. But uh, RoboCop was a revelation. It's yeah. so smart. It had so much to say. Uh, it, 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 it's satire. It's it's parody. Uh, Ronnie Cox is is great. Miguel Ferrer is terrific in it. Peter Weller, even underneath all this uh, metal, armor is armor it gives a heartfelt performance nancy allen's terrific um I, it's just it's just so smart and i don't think anyone saw it coming and i rewatched it again recently and it's just as good as i remembered it We get the best of both worlds. The fastest reflexes modern technology has to offer onboard computer-assisted memory and a lifetime of on-the-street law enforcement programming. It is my great pleasure to present to you, RoboCop. This guy is really good. He's not a guy, he's a machine. Old Detroit has a cancer. Cancer is crime. Let the woman go. You are under arrest. You, you better back up, pal. Your move, creep. What are your prime directives? You have the right to remain silent. You have the right to an attorney. What is this shit? Anything you say may be used against you. He's a cyborg, you idiot. You recorded every word you said. You're dead. We killed you. His memory is admissible as evidence. You're gonna have to kill it. Get in the car, for God's sake! Robocop, the future of law enforcement. Yeah, that yeah, definitely it's, it's, falls under the, the heading of uh, movies that you discover that are just absolutely great. You have no expectation for um, this was like the, there's another one I talked about on 430 movie, but it's a movie that changed my life and my whole relationship with violence in the movies, but in a positive way. Um, and, uh, you know, I just I have such um, it's funny because a, a movie that is as violent as this one with a title like Robocop that is so satirical 
And the thing that for me that stands out the most is the connection between Murphy and his family and how that plays in such an incredibly indelibly emotional way uh, when he starts to get his memories back, when he goes back to his house, when he's seeing the life that he left behind, um, when, you know, Murphy goes from like, you know, he had been a cop, then he became the robot. And now suddenly he becomes something else, right? It's like, he is like, it, it's interesting. It's like, he, that is when he becomes the RoboCop, right? It's, he, uh, he synthesizes those two halves of his, of his personality um, and becomes something more. And it's just, it's incredibly moving. Um, and then like the structure of this movie is perfect and it has a perfect ending that doesn't overstay as welcome. Dick, Absolutely. you're fired. What's your name, I, son? Murphy. I'll tell you. There are a few You're sequels. Out. There are a few sequels I hate more than RoboCop Two. Um, oh <laughs> my god! Remakes they, I hate more than RoboCop Twenty Fourteen. Oh, the roommate. The remake is just dreadful as well. Wow. <laughs> yeah, but a, but a great movie from a really great director, and I'm glad to see Verhoeven on the list again because both Starship Troopers and RoboCop are are, are, are pretty awesome movies. Okay. Well, it was inevitable. Number thirty three that Darren would phone home. <laughs> I'm not phoning this one in, though. Um, <laughs> it's uh, it's a, an, another uh, gem from 1982, that magical year. Uh, and, you know, it hit at uh, sort of the perfect time for uh, most of us. Uh, I, I turned, uh, what, 15 when this uh, movie came out. And... It is a, it's magical and it's almost a sequel to Close Encounters. It's E.T., the extraterrestrial. In 1975, he directed Jaws. In 1978, he directed Close Encounters of the Third Kind. In 1981, he directed Raiders of the Lost Ark. And now, Steven Spielberg brings us E.T., the extraterrestrial. We will witness the arrival, the search, the desertion, the fear, the discovery, the friendship. I'm keeping him. The secret. The love, the warning, the signal, the mystery, the danger. The intrusion, the wonderment, the enchantment, the hope, the connection has been made. Universal Pictures presents Steven Spielberg's E.T. The Extraterrestrial. Um, Steven Spielberg returns 
uh, after uh, uh, his triumph at uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and he wants to do a little film for a little amount of money. And uh, he does. He turns to uh, writer Melissa Matheson to uh, rewrite a script that he had in development for years that Ron Cobb was originally going to direct called Night Skies. And uh, it, uh, it, it's totally rewritten. That was a, uh, a movie about three uh, bad aliens sort of taking over a house. And uh, that sort of uh, morphed into Gremlins. Uh, but uh, the idea was that uh, this was an alien that was friendly and uh, kind and uh, helpful. And it, it was sort of the reverse story that Close Encounters has where they take one of ours uh, off into space. This one, they leave one of theirs here by accident. And uh, as we find out later in the E.T. adventure ride at Universal Studios, um, it was kind of a big, big mistake. If uh, E.T. had all this healing power, that he could uh, save their planet. Why did they leave him here? That's my big question. Botanicus screwed up, man. Botanicus was a goofball, and he paid heartily for his mistake. Um, E.T. Is, uh, is great. It takes place ostensibly somewhere in California. It's, uh, it's sort of uh, in Southern and Northern California at the same time. Uh, it's uh, a magical location that I've actually visited the house uh, where it was shot. It's, uh, it's so much, uh, you know, this is, uh, between this and Poltergeist, this is where everyone got the idea that Spielberg, uh, dwelt in suburbia and he, uh, gave this, uh, image of suburbia to the world, uh, that, uh, uh that it came from. And I think that's, uh, that's partially the case. I think mostly it's, uh, it's Spielberg trying to sort out his own childhood and sort of uh, right some wrongs that happened in his own upbringing. Um, uh, but in this case, uh, much like Spielberg's uh, upbringing, uh, Elliot, the kid in the story, uh, doesn't have a dad in the picture anymore. And he's dealing with that loss. And uh, he is uh, seeking out friendship to help him through it. And the friend that he picks uh, eats Reese's Pieces and comes from uh, three million miles away. Um, it's to say that the that this uh, took the world by storm is an understatement. This was a wildfire of popularity in '82, and uh, and later in re-releases, it everyone saw ET apparently at that time. And uh, everyone loved it. I mean, the performance by a little uh, nine-year-old Drew Barrymore is astounding. And uh, even though, you know, when she promises E.T. at the end that she'll be good, she didn't really follow that. Uh, <laughs> but it's okay, because she's okay now. Um, but it's actually, it's, it's one of Spielberg's best directed and deftly uh, uh, directed films. Um, it's really a a simple story, but masterfully told. And the, uh, the sort of side jaunts that the story takes uh, to see Elliot in school, uh, dealing with uh, being drunk because of his psychic connection with E.T., drinking beer in his kitchen, is, uh, is really wonderful. And uh, a, a great uh, sequence of uh, uh, scenes happens because of that. Um, it's a great movie, and it's an emotional movie. And you are, you are feeling the feeling that E.T. has throughout the movie. 
and you are crying when he, quote, dies. You're crying when he comes back. It's amazing how it works on an audience. And yeah. uh, it's it's one of my absolute favorite movies. I remember yeah, I, I didn't uh, go to see it um, when it came out for many months uh, because I figured anything that was so successful, I, I, yeah. I had no interest in it. I figured it, it just sounds sappy and saccharine yep. and I have no interest in seeing it. It got to the point where everyone and their mother had seen it. I figured I got to go see the stupid movie and I went to see it and I loved it. So yeah. what do I know? Yeah. It's one it of my very favorites of all time. Um, honestly, I think we actually, like, I think it's, I think it is not high enough on this list, frankly. I mean, to me, it's, um, I agree with you, Darren. I think it's one of Spielberg's best directed films. I would argue that it's probably, if we consider the masterpiece to be the thing that makes you go, okay, you're the freaking master. Like to me, like this is, this is the, this is the platonic ideal of a Spielberg film. There's so many little things that just demonstrate his mastery over his craft if you look at it, everything from how the movie is shot, it's basically shot from the point of view of like, you know, of somebody who is Elliot's size, like yeah. that's how we see the adults, um, to literally every scene with Peter Coyote as Keys, who's the, uh, the government agent with Elliot, they're always like reflected or between glass, like they're always sort of looking at each other, they're always in a conversation so that we feel like they are different sides of the same coin. Um, it has one of my favorite cuts of all time. And look, it's weird to even have a favorite cut of all time, but it has it um, at the very, very end when they're saying goodbye to E.T. Look, the movie's about empathy. The very beginning of the movie, Elliot says a terrible thing to his mother about his father leaving. And his brother says, Elliot, you got to learn that other people have feelings, which is what Elliot learns. And at the end of the movie, D. Wallace Stone playing his hot mom. Uh, is there with Elliot and with Gertie and with Mike. And, well, actually, Mike isn't there. And with E.T. and they're saying goodbye. And when Elliot says goodbye to E.T., he falls to his knees and his mother is watching. And for no damn reason other than he's a master, Spielberg cuts to D. Wallace Stone, who falls to her knees and mimics the same gesture that Elliot is making to E.T., it is a beautiful, overwhelmingly emotional moment. It is so simple. It just goes to show you that great directing is not about flashy shit. Great directing is about great visual storytelling that says things to you um, in a shot, in like in one perfect little image. And E.T. is just full of them. Uh, one of my favorite movies ever made. I also have to say that one of the great things about about this movie is I think it what it has to say about childhood, you know, you know, you're on the cusp of losing your innocence. And and this this is a story about not losing your innocence. It is truly a story about what childhood, the awe and wonder of being a child, what what it can truly mean. And while and why innocence is so important, because the way Elliot is able to communicate with E.T., you know, on one hand, in his real life, his father has left him. He's dealing with the emotional baggage of, of, of losing a parent and all of this. But it has not changed the goodness. It has not hardened his heart yet. But and, it also it also treats children like little adults. Yes. And it, 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 it doesn't fall into the trap of having children sound like children. They right. sound, uh, you know, they sound completely uh, uh, mature in their 
in their thought processes and their dialogue. Their dialogue feels absolutely real. And uh, th there's no falling into the sort of cartoony, uh, uh, you know, kids speak that sometimes you find in lesser movies. Well, it's funny. I've, I've heard people say, especially younger people that don't like this movie or find it, which blows me away because I've often thought in our post Bart Simpson world where children are shown as the adults are the idiots yeah. and children know everything. Um, we've we've seen that transition happen. This comes that this comes from a time when that was not true. Yeah, I don't know if ET if ET had come out after The Simpsons was airing, if we would be talking about it the way we're talking about it right now. Interesting. Well, in just the way that ET left to go home to the Green Planet, we're going to leave you here at the end of this installment. But the good news is, unlike ET, we'll be back to bring you the next installment of sci-fi's top 101 movies of all time. So before we go, a very special thanks to our own Botanicus, the great Bill Ritter, makes it sound so great, as well as our producers, Peter Holmstrom, Zach Ragus, Natalie Miscali, and you, the audience, for sticking it out and staying with us. No matter where we go in the universe, you continue to stay with us. So on behalf of Ashley Edward Miller, Robert Meyer Burnett, Darren R. Docterman, and myself, Mark A. Altman, we'll see you for the next installment of our 101 greatest sci-fi movies here on the Inglorious Trekkers holiday special. Until then, keep on trekking. Ingloriously, of course. You're listening to the Electric Surge Network.